This episode of the Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by you, our dedicated listeners and supporters. Thanks to your continued listening, sharing, and donations, we've been able to continue the show free from third-party advertisers and sponsors. So, thank you. And if you'd like to learn about other ways you can support the show, visit patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. Before we begin, I have a quick announcement to make. The second edition of the Curious About Cannabis book is coming out this week on August 1st. Expanded and revised with over 100 additional pages of content and resources, Curious About Cannabis is the perfect reference text for all things cannabis and cannabinoid science. This book was designed to be a tool for anyone serious about teaching or learning about the science of cannabis and is a perfect textbook addition to existing cannabis workshops, courses, and curricula. Visit CACpodcast.com to learn more about the Curious About Cannabis book and get ready to take your cannabis education to the next level. I'm Mark Sheldon. I'm a uh, PhD organic chemist who works in the cannabis industry. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. This episode has been cut for time. To listen to the full conversation, visit patreon.com slash curious about cannabis. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today I am really, really excited uh, to have uh, this guest that we haven't known each other for very long, but we're already getting along so very well. So I know this conversation will be really good, but I am with an organic chemist that works with cannabinoids in the cannabis space, uh, Mark Sheldon. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for being willing to carve out the time to come on the podcast today. You're welcome, Jason. Thank you. Yeah, totally. So um, Mark has been um, kind of in the uh, news circuits more recently for um, a patent that he's been working on for uh, what's called hydrogenated cannabinoids. And we'll talk in a a little bit about specifically what that is and the the process and the implications um, for that. But before we dive into all of that, um, Mark just has a very interesting, fascinating story that I really want to go through and build up to kind of where we're at now as far as the attention that you've been getting and then uh, talk about where you're going. So um, do you mind describing uh, to our listeners a little bit um, you know, first of all, a little bit about the work that you do and then how you've gotten to where you are right now. Sure, Jason. Um, so currently I serve as the uh, chief science officer for a company called BR Brands. We're a company that owns uh, several different brands in the cannabis space. If you go to brbrands.com, you can see uh, the different uh, brands and probably familiar with those if you're in states like Colorado or California, but we're in states now like Oklahoma and uh, nice. Florida and Nevada and uh, coming, through, coming to a state near you, right? <laughs> Just like the rest of the industry. So uh, I had uh, the uh, sort of science and innovation piece where we look at, you know, leveraging my uh, expertise across, you know, all of our products just to make sure that our products are the best they can possibly be and yeah. everything is uh you know underpinned by good science and that's what i like to hear yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> so uh, so yeah that's, a, that's sort of my current role i had uh, previously uh, consulted 
Uh, my company is called Better Chem Consulting, and I had done work with, oh, I don't know, more than a dozen clients in as many states to uh, get them operational, uh, mostly around the uh, processing extraction mm -hmm. formulation piece. So, uh, as you know, that's um, there's a lot of science in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah, it's not it's not just making water hash anymore. So yeah, um, it's been a really interesting uh, few years, uh, you know, working with many different clients in that end of the industry. Because as you know, there's been a big move. Uh, people aren't just uh, you know smoking cannabis anymore. They're yeah, consuming oils and vape pens and processed products. And so basically, with that, any administration method you can think of. Right, right. So with that change in the industry has come, you know wanting to understand more about extraction and the analytical methods that underpin making high quality extracts that are safe and efficacious. Yeah. And one thing I really appreciated about uh, when we were talking before the podcast started about kind of your philosophy behind uh, the work that you do, it's very much about bridging these worlds of science and technical mastery, but also art and yeah. And and really mixing these these things together. So, can you speak a little bit about um, kind of where that passion comes from? Of not just focusing on on you know this highly um, sort of technical perfection of, of of science, but also integrating that artistic mastery as well. Well, well uh, where it comes from, I think I, I could probably blame endless hours of playing with Legos. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, and, and, and this is before it was like SpongeBob Legos or Star Wars exactly. Legos. It was just a box of colored bricks that you just kind of stuck yep. together and very nonlinear thinking applied to being creative with, you know, any number of elements you have that you can put together in your own way. And so that, yeah, is the parallel I, I always draw between science and music, which is that, you know, you really have to have a deep appreciation for what's been done before you. And if that's an mm -hmm. art, that's appreciating art, appreciating the masters, you know, listening to Beethoven and, yeah. and, and looking at really the, the people who have basically taken nothing and put it into this new thing called art. And so that's what chemistry is in many ways, because there's a lot of chemists that, you know, even in cannabinoid chemistry that, you know, basically have already worked out a lot of the details. And so what we can do from here is develop really a solid basis of understanding of what's been done before you and then take that input into yourself and then internalize it mm -hmm. in the way that you play with Legos in a nonlinear way. And you could put yeah. together new things that because you can draw from different different, you know, uh, ways that, you know, again, the Beach Boys drew from Chuck Berry, who drew from Louis Jordan. Oh, yeah, drew exactly. From yeah. The, you know, slave chants in the fields. I mean, yep. everything builds on everything that happened before it. You know, there's life before the Beatles and there's life after yep. the Beatles. And how many rock bands will tell you, well, the reason why we got in this was the Beatles. Well, I read Professor Mishulam's work and I'm like, man, yeah. he's, my, he's my John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's so, there's so much work that was done prior that it's really difficult to do anything new 
if you really don't have the grasp of where that current frontier is. And yeah. so I think that way with art, I think that way with music, and I think the way that you deal with how you express yourself in your art and in your music is uniquely you, yeah. right? It's uniquely based on your experiences and, and how you think about solving problems. Yeah, man, I love that. Yeah, I I love Legos. I grew up in such – we have such – similar backgrounds in certain ways remember tinker toys yes tinker toys tinker toys i mean you tinker with them right i I have a a one and almost a one and a half year old daughter now and i keep telling my wife i'm like okay so when can we get the tinker toys like i'm ready (laughs) like i just want to i want to see you know she's already working with like you know the the giant Legos. I don't can't remember what they're called, but the 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 big versions for right. toddlers and stuff. And and you know with blocks and seeing her, you know that that creative process of like, oh, I put this together, it makes this. Oh, I destroy it. And that destruction element too is such an important part of um, progress and success too. And I'm sure in the lab you've probably experienced many failures on your way towards understanding and improving and everything. Okay. Yeah, I, I've I've talked about this before. Uh, my first experiment, my first experiment was a total failure. I, I had a, 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 a Gilbert chemistry set. If you're old enough nice, to remember, nice. yes. the, the metal case, you know, that yeah. folds open and it turns into your little laboratory with yeah. the test tube rack and the alcohol lamp and the phenol thing. Well, I had a thick book, right? And I was just learning how to read, which tells you this must have been like first or second grade or something. I, I, yeah. But it was right around the same time I was playing with Legos, right? And I didn't have patience to read the book. So I just started adding everything to the test tube. <laughs> and then nothing happened, right? And I added the phenol thaline indicator. Well, nothing happened. So I'm like, well, alcohol lamp, we'll get something to happen here. You know, got a pack of matches from the drawer. You remember, <laughs> mat- remember matches? Yeah, right. And I, I lit a match and I was downstairs in our basement and my mom must have smelled it because when you light a match in a house, you could smell mm-hmm. it. Yep. So she said, hmm, so something's burning. So she came downstairs and I lit the alcohol lamp and I was cooking that stuff and it was bubbling and boiling. <laughs> and when she came downstairs, I must have turned ever so slightly to see who was coming down. And when she did, I hit a hot spot in the test tube and all that stuff flew out onto the flame and shot this wow. flame. And it singed my eyebrows. And so I, I never remember or never forget the smell of burnt hair from my first experiment. Because, and she came down and she said, you and chemistry, that's it. You're over. That's it. You were supposed to wait till your dad came. I was supposed to read some book. I just, yeah. So my no, first I experiment was a failure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing, though, is you you can't, whether it's, no matter what it is, if you want to master something, you can't be afraid to break things and dive in. I mean, you know, I mentioned before the podcast started that a lot of my background, other than biology and and the analytical chemistry work that I've done and everything is um, in technology and IT and stuff. And I mean, growing up, it was the same way. I uh, my parents would have devices, uh, Betamax machines and VC, later VCRs and, you know, computers and stuff. And you better believe I was taking those apart and trying to put them back together. And I broke a lot of things <laughs> on the well, way. If, if every experiment works the way you think it's going to work, you're not going to learn anything new by running it. So what are you doing running it? You know, exactly. so you have to do new things and those have to be based on, again, standing on that solid scientific foundation. I mean, the papers I have open in my own research are that of Mishulam, mm-hmm. Wolner, Roger Adams. I mean, this is the key yeah. research, and it's in peer-reviewed literature, so you know that 
you know, other scientists looked at this. This isn't just some, you know, future yeah. 420 thing that may not be right or may not be, you know, right. You don't really know. Yeah. No. And that's, I think, part of like what we need to transition to, which is that there needs to be more cannabinoid researchers doing more research and publishing more stuff. And so, yeah, Jayhan's new journal and other journals hopefully are going to make some of this research accessible for, for people. So that's good. Yeah, I think so. And I'm excited to see the, um, the prevalence of open access journals too, mm -hmm. because something yeah. that I'm sure you can appreciate coming from an academic world that it, it, it can be so frustrating once you leave a university and you lose your library subscription and everything. And you're like, what? I have to deal with all these paywalls on papers mm -hmm. that like my mm -hmm. tax money helped fund a lot of that mm -hmm. research in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, I'm, I'm excited about this push by so many researchers and scientists to try to start making research more accessible to the public and to expedite like now there's um you know open access peer review processes are, are becoming really popular too so anyone can see well who who was on the peer review board and what feedback did they give and how did the paper change and i think all of that is so useful for us um really moving forward at an accelerated rate of progress you know to to have that transparency, uh, which is really exciting. So these new cannabinoid science journals, like uh, was it Cannab uh, Cannabis and Cannabinoid Science is one, and then the one you referenced, the Endocannabinoid. Um, American Journal of Endocannabinoid yeah. Medicine, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's key to be able to make these things accessible, like you said, because if people have to pay like 30 bucks or something like that, you know what they're going to do? They're going to pirate it somehow, or people yep. are going to get it free anyway. So just make it accessible. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and going back to this idea of mistakes, I wanted to touch on something that you actually taught me uh, that I was unaware of, uh, which is that Mashula may not have been the first person, that his team may not have been the first ones to isolate THC. Well, yeah, okay. So this is a little bit of a, I won't say a, a maybe semi-controversial subject. First of all, I take my hat off to Professor Mashulam, who um, shall get the Nobel Prize in medicine before he uh, uh, too long. Yeah. I know that he was actually nominated for it, I believe the year before last. The discovery of the endocannabinoid system is yeah. certainly worthy of a Nobel Prize in medicine because of the research that it has spawned. And make no bones about it. I mean, the National Institutes of Health, he says this in his movie, has now said that the endocannabinoid system underpins all human disease, all yep. human disease. So the endocannabinoid system is the body's own pharmaceutical company. <laughs> Yeah. And the pharma companies don't like that. <laughs> so keeping it nourished, and again, I, I listened to your uh, your thing with Ethan, you know, the whole notion of, of, of endocannabinoid deficiencies really starts to put cannabinoids into the same realm as vitamins, as yeah. things that we need on a daily basis to intake into our system. Because unlike most antioxidants that we take in, which are water-soluble, like the ascorbates and whatnot, these are fat-soluble antioxidants that deposit themselves in the fatty tissues of your body and end up helping from reactive oxygenated species that would cause radical mediated damage. So like it or not, just like many people have said, all cannabis use is medical because you're getting this protective effect of these fat-soluble antioxidants in the fatty tissues of your body, including your pancreas and your brain. And yeah, um, yeah I, I, I and the other thing is like this this whole, you know, people are, are rediscovering terpenes. You know, terpenes, anyway, to a chemist, is nothing new. And I really enjoyed your, your discussion with Jackie 
Um, you know, it's interesting with Thugene is like when you when you look at the biosynthetic pathway to the monoterpenes, what you'll see is yeah. that geranium pyrophosphate basically ionizes and loses its pyrophosphate group, which makes a carbonium ion, right? Because you have yeah. something minus, you have something plus. Yep. <laughs> That's the way it works, right? Right, got to balance. So, right, so so your cation there originally is gets delocalized over the framework to make the limonene cation, and there's several fates that the limonene cat limonene could be made. Right. You could make, I actually drew a few structures down. You could make the pinenes that way, carrions. But when the limonene uh, cation migrates from the from the tertiary position into the ring, you make the thugenes and the sabinenes and the terpenes and, and p -sine. So all this chemistry just branches from one little molecule and, exactly. and, and all and all the varieties of of cannabis have different levels of expression of these terpene synthases that create the molecular easy work or molecular frame chair or whatever you want to have, molecular easy chair. That's what I want to say. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. To basically coax these different um, transformations to happen. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed your discussion with uh, with Jackie around Thugene. It's really interesting to see what she's going to do with Chris and this new oh, I know. Yeah. adventure in psychedelics. I mean, that's like that's the next frontier. <laughs> it like, really is, yeah. Cannabinoids first, and then psychedelics next. <laughs> well, and it, it highlights, uh, so there's so much to loop back around on here, but just to go off of what you just said, this um, expansion into psychedelic research, I mean, it's, um, it's definitely connected to all mm -hmm. of the cannabinoid research. It overlaps. There's a fuzzy barrier there uh, where one ends and the other begins, and really – the thing that's unique about psychedelics is it just gets you into this world of working with, um, you know, nitrogenous substances and, you know, other yeah. things, you know, that that's get right. beyond these kind of more simple fats. Um, that's right. the, the phenethylamines. And so yeah, if you want to look up the work, work of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, Alexander Shulgin. Alexander Shulgin, Sasha Shulgin, his two books. I mean, certainly there's so much work that's been out there and that's been done. And yeah, where these two worlds meet is these are both – yes, there they are. Um, those are two seminal texts that any uh, psychedelic chemist needs to uh, delve into. My copies are upstairs. Um, but where my thought was going on this is that these are two different sets of – biological receptors that are happening in the body that happen in the brain a lot. And so mm -hmm. how they play and how, how they work and how human disease is, is, is uh, can be combated. Like we're, we're doing this really interesting study, if I could digress for a second, on yeah. the delivery of CBD um, into the brain of mice using a transnasal uh, delivery mechanism. Yeah. So this is a, a group, uh, uh, Dr. William Frey from the Health Partners up at the University of Minnesota has developed this methodology for treating Alzheimer's doing transnasal delivery of insulin. And we believe mm. we're, we're doing this with both CBD and hydrogenated CBD. We'll talk a little bit more about that yeah. later, but we want to see, you know, where is CBD going and ultimately can CBD use, be used in this effective way because they know that this is a great way to get things through the blood-brain barrier. One of the things we really want to do with that technology is try to deliver the cannabinoid acids because yes, it's conventional yeah. wisdom that you need to decarboxylate to get the cannabinoids into the uh, past the blood-brain uh, barrier and maybe now using this 
uh, transnasal liposomal delivery, uh, we can use a uh, kind of like a Trojan horse. You slip it in, yes. <laughs> and then the Trojan horse um, opens, and maybe a, a way of delivering permeability. Yeah. Absolutely. So drug delivery is a really, really fascinating thing. And when you apply it to cannabinoids, there's a whole bunch of opportunities to explore. And we're starting to look at that. Yeah, that's that's super, super exciting. And it it just makes me think about, you know, think about how far cannabinoid medicines have come. Like I know um, recently Dr. El Soli from the University of Mississippi um, uh, published something pointing out that they had come up with these basically these THC eye drops for glaucoma. So to try to get localized administration, and that's that's become a big uh, thing now among a lot of research, localized cannabinoid administration. How do you get the cannabinoids mm-hmm. to go to where you want them to go mm-hmm. without going everywhere else? And particularly with THC, because you're trying to limit the right. you know. Uh, euphoric, whatever right. phrase you right. want to use for that, and you're trying to uh, treat a disease, but you don't want to get high. Right, it's, it's about limiting side effects. Really, it's like you want the targeted effect that you want, and and try to minimize everything else. So that's that's super fascinating. I want to make I like sure that we side effect myself. It's a, the side right, effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't necessarily mind that side effect either, but I do understand that. Uh, yeah, I, for like, the third grade know. teacher, for the teacher who has to stand up in front of her class, exactly. but yeah. she needs the cannabinoid medicine, or the bus driver, or somebody who can't be intoxicated exactly. at the time. Absolutely, there's a need for that. Yeah, yeah. And and looping back around, because we didn't quite get to it, I want to make sure we do. So about the THC discovery. Mm-hmm. So um, we talked, we alluded to that the story behind the THC discovery is a little more complicated than it's than it's um, publicized a lot of times. And and we don't want to take anything away from Dr. Mashulam because the work no. he's done is, is amazing. And I agree with you. It would be a huge travesty if he does not receive a Nobel Prize, especially before he passes. I mean, he's in his 90s now, and yeah. it's just like he. I, I just want we to see to him alive to get it. I believe you have to. So we have to give it to him before he passes. But yes, yeah, yes. yeah. Because otherwise, it would be you know possibly someone else on the team or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you know, I just want to see him recognized for the the gravity yeah. of that work. But that all being a put aside for a second. Let's talk about the late 1800s because what you schooled me on um, is something I just didn't pay attention to. And it, it highlights the importance of really reading research articles critically. Um, it's generally, and I've taught this, it's generally um, expressed that CBN was one of the first cannabinoids isolated from cannabis, uh, CBN and CBD and then THC in the 60s. But you have a different perspective on that. So do you mind sharing um, yeah. the details on that? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jason. So this is actually the subject of a, of a short uh, 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 article that I've contributed to the American Journal of Endocannabinoid Medicine that's coming out, I believe, in the next issue, which is in July, I believe. So you'll see that, I'm sure, uh, when, you're, when, uh, when it comes out, we can certainly uh, post it on your uh, social media. So people can yeah. See. But um, so even if you uh, if you go to the literature and you look, what you'll find is that, yeah, so Meshulam isolated THC and he correctly used um, NMR, which was a new technique at the time to um, correctly elucidate the structure. So so Raffi's first is the correct structural elucidation of delta-9 THC. Now, he did it by taking hash each, uh, chromatographing it on a column, 
And then he made a crystalline derivative of what was still kind of like a not completely 100% pure mixture. But when he made the crystalline derivative, one thing you could do with highly crystalline deliver, derivatives, uh, like CBD, for example, is you could do multiple recrystallizations. And when you recrystallize something, you could really recrystallize it to 99.99% purity. Yeah. Well, then what he did is he took the he took the group that made that thing a crystalline molecule, chopped it off, and then he did a short path distillation where he recorded the um, the boiling point of 157 Fahrenheit at a at a vacuum of 0 0.05 torr. Well. Um, if you look at Mishulam's paper from 1964, that's a Jack's communication where he reports that. And again, used structural uh, uh, techniques that were unique in 1960s that researchers back in the earlier days just didn't have. And so uh, Roger Adams is probably most notably uh, the discoverer of uh, the first person to isolate CBD, and they isolated it from uh, wild hemp. Right. And if you go to the Adams literature, and this is wonderful, and any chemist who's interested in this, let, reach out to me, and I could certainly make sure we can get you this literature to read. He published a series of, of 11 papers in less than two years between 1939 wow. and 1941 on all of his work that he did on the isolation of, of THC and the isolation of, of, of CBD. Now, in his work and the people who worked before them, um, what they did isomerized the double bond from delta nine to delta eight. So, if you look mm -hmm. at if you look at Adams's patents from 1941, what you'll see is that they have the delta eight isomer. So they have an incorrect assignment of where that double bond was, and it's totally understandable because as soon as you stare cross-eyed at that double bond, it goes from delta nine to delta eight. In Raffi's method, Raffi's method was so mild that there was no isomerization, and because there was no isomerization, he correctly elucidated the delta nine, and that's Raffi's first. But if you look at the prior work, and there's notably work by Kahn, who published four papers in the early 30s, who really looked at, and when you find Kahn, then you find the guys from 1896, because he references a paper from Woods, Spivy, and Easterfield, published in the Journal of the Chemical the Journal of the Chemical Society, right? <laughs> that, that's how high the Brits thought of themselves. They were the, that was before the American Chemical, this is the Chemical Society, right? And so in that paper in 1896, they had gone over to India and have, you know, taken charis, which mm -hmm. is the traditional yeah. form of oil or resinous exudate from cannabis, and they extracted it and they distilled it. And if, if you know, about the short path distillation or vacuum distillation is like if you lower the vacuum, which means you're pulling a stronger, deeper vacuum, right. you need less heat to boil that liquid. Yep. And and the, the temperature at which a pure liquid boils is unique for that compound. So if you're boiling just THC, if you read the temperature at the stillhead, the temperature at which that liquid is condensing, that's the boiling point of THC at that vacuum, right? And so if you look at the data from the 1896 paper and you plot it on something called a nomograph, that's mm -hmm. N-O-M-O-graph, and there's an online version, one that's provided by Sigma Aldrich Chemical, and what you do is you could put the observed boiling point and your observed vacuum pressure, 
and it'll basically correct it for the boiling point at at sea level at 760 nanometers, which is atmospheric pressure. So if you plot Mishulam's data using his very gentle method, and if you plot the 1896 data, it circles on the same damn point, which is 427 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit, which is the boiling point of THC. Now I looked at some of my data that I got when I was doing some distillate work for a client in 2016, and I plotted my data and it's the same one. And I can tell you that's a high THC variety. And um, THC doesn't just convert to CBN, you know. In, in order to make CBN, you have to remove two moles of hydrogen from that methylcyclohexene ring to convert it to the aromatic ring. And that does happen at like nail temperatures, like when you dab some of that THC or THCA that you're decarboxylating and turning into THC, some of that goes over to CBN. I've seen reclaimed samples as high as 10, 15% CBN. Yeah, it's really interesting because again, that's just oil that just kind of crashed out in the ring. It's right. not like bong water. Right. Take that out and recover it. Yeah, <laughs> right. For, but, for the chemistry, yeah. But I, I, I guess the point is, is that when they did this discovery back in 1896, this was what, 20 years before the discovery of the electron folks? Yeah, okay? right. Yeah, to put this into like real perspective here, yeah. Pretty significant stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think of it from the point of view that, my gosh, this is before the turn of the century, like it was Queen Victoria time, right, mm -hmm. in England. And Queen Victoria, I think uh, she was using cannabis for her menstrual pains, isn't that right? Yeah. Or there was a lot of use. Yeah. And through O'Shaughnessy's paper exactly. from earlier in the 1800s, there was a lot of interest in cannabis and what is in cannabis. So, so these Brits were the first guys to distill it. And I'm telling you, if you read the paper itself, and I could send you a copy of the paper. Yeah, James, I love it. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, their description of it, they call it toxic red oil. <laughs> toxic. <laughs> I think the only reason why they call it toxic is because they knew that this is what gave cannabis its. It was its intoxicating. Yeah. It was in. It, right. 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 Not like the current meaning of toxic, but yes, right. that it was intoxicating. That's right. And so they did combustion analysis, and I think what complicated their combustion analysis again was if you think about it, they got the empirical formula pretty damn close. They were like C22, like they were off by like one carbon and a couple hydrogen. Well, if you read Kahn's papers from like 30 years later, he corrected all that. Kahn, again, published four papers in the early 30s. And it was that foundation that, that, that Adams and Todd stood on. So yeah. Todd was a guy over in England at Imperial College, I believe. And Todd, if you look at Todd's structure, and you'd be like, well, he got the structure for THC. It's right here. Well, again, he's standing on Khan, who's standing on Todd, who's standing on Ad, and that's where Mishulam came in. You know, Mishulam came in after the advent of Proton NMR, and he had a Varian T60. I remember the instrument well. And uh, he figured out that, yeah, it's in the Delta 9 configuration. So that's Mishulam's first. But the first people to actually isolate THC, I believe, was Woods, Bivy, and Easterfield back reported in 1896. Yeah, so so I guess um, for those listening to to really distill this down, perhaps the, perhaps the perhaps the most accurate way to describe what's happened is that Mishulam and his team were the first to elucidate the structure 
uh, with the level of accuracy that they that they had that, that had never been done before. Without but, isomerizing it or in any way changing right. it, it's grabbing it from the plant and and getting it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then and then the researchers in the late 1800s through the 30s they were isolating it, and as far back as we can tell, those researchers in the late 1800s seem to have actually isolated. THC, even if they didn't quite understand the structure and what exactly they they had at the time. Right. And the beautiful thing about Meshulam's work is Meshulam recognized that there was inconsistency in the literature. So what he did is, you know, he chromatographed hashish. So as you know, it's not THC, it's THCA in there. So he basically right. purified a THCA. But when he did that short path distillation, no question about it. It's going to decarboxylate in that short path distillation. What he's measuring there is not the boiling point of THC at, at standard pressure and not the boiling point of THCA. He's measuring the boiling point of THC at that vacuum. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one thing um, I think we we were laughing about before the podcast that ties into what you just said, the idea of boiling um, cannabinoid acids. Um it's kind yeah. of a, a funny concept. And and once again, this is something that like when you present it to me, I was like, well, yeah, intuitively that makes perfect sense. But I don't know that I'd ever really thought about it in any meaningful way. Well, um, the one thing I could say is that you can melt THCA from a crystalline sure, solid sure. into yeah. a liquid without decarboxylating it. Yes, that liquid, yeah. if you let stand, will go back. But decarboxylation is sort of happening at room temperature, just at a very, very slow rate. Right, right. It's a first-order reaction. There's been some really nice chemical literature done on this. It's um, right. Yeah. Carboxylic acids have been studied for a long time, and it. And one thing I like to point out to people that you'll appreciate and probably back me up on this: it's not just heat that causes decarboxylation; it's energy. Um, and so theoretically, uh, you know, uh, theoretically, you could you could decarboxylate something. Um, by hitting that molecule with, do we with want to give these guys a little chemistry lesson? Do we want to give these guys a clue? A go for it, yeah. If you, if you can take off, yeah, go yeah. for it. So uh, basically, what the literature shows us is that um, in the decarboxylation of what's called a salicylic acid, a salicylic acid is a benzene ring that has a carboxylic acid, so a benzoic acid next to a hydroxyl group. So in the decarboxylation of salicylic acid, the rate determining step is the protonation of the uh, ring and deprotonation of the CO2 minus. So once you have CO2 minus and you have a protonated ar aromatic ring, you got a great leaving group and you got a, you know, and entropy is in your favor because the CO2 is going to be, you know, take off. In order for the CO2 to combine with the phenol to make the salicylic right. acid, that's a reaction called the Kolbe-Schmidt reaction, which is an old, old uh, uh, German reaction that takes place in molten salt. So it's kind of like middle of the sun chemistry <laughs> that just you know pyrolyzes these things together. But the, the funny thing, again, is there's been a lot of uh, people talking about like decarboxylation of, 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 of the plant material before they decarboxylate the oil. And uh, I think the thing with decarboxylating plant material is now you're destroying oxidatively all those terpenes that you yeah. invested in your genetics and all it's your... Like, what was the point? Right. The, you, the terpenes uh, are the most volatile, sensitive molecules in the cannabis plant. And if you really want your extracts and products to taste like that, you have to treat them with kid gloves and try to get those terpenes out before you do high temperature yeah. or, or any, you know, 
processing where you beat on it with a hammer. <laughs> That's actually a really good point before we go further to summarize for people, because this is really common in CO2 extraction that mm -hmm. uh, folks will, because they want to eliminate water primarily, um, and because then uh, for folks that aren't familiar with CO2 extraction, a common issue that happens, uh, and the only reason I know this because I've worked in a CO2 extraction environment before, um, when you depending on your parameters. So one thing I'll say about CO2 extraction is CO2 extraction is not one thing. Um, supercritical fluid extraction is a, a very interesting technology that you can tweak in all sorts of ways. Uh, just parameters have, you know, all sorts of different ways of going about it. But the, the common way that it's used in the cannabis industry is um, if you don't get the water out of your material, you end up extracting some of that water and then your extract is less shelf stable and you run into other problems depending on how you're refining it and that, you know, that sort of thing. So people tend to cook their cannabis before CO2 extraction to try to dehydrate it um, and get it ready. But as you just pointed out, the, the downside to that, and Murphy Murray talked about this too when I interviewed her, that you know, you're, you're sacrificing especially the monoterpenes, which are some of the most fascinating um, because they're so ephemeral. I mean, they... Uh, you know, going back to what you're saying about uh, adrenal pyrophosphate being the the starting point for terpenes, it's important for people to understand just how diverse a chemical class uh, terpenes are. Oh, I mean, it's like an enormous chemical class that derives from very simple, humble beginnings. Um, and these monoterpenes, it's it's been an issue in natural product science forever that um, holding on to those things can be very, very hard. Um, and so it does require um, attention and forethought to think about how you're going to handle those things. So you could, what you're pointing out is you could extract those terpenes first and then take your, what's often called the mark, your remaining material after extraction, and then you could dehydrate it. Then you could extract it for cannabinoids mm -hmm. um, and, and retain those fractions. But unfortunately that's, uh, there's some companies doing that, but a lot of them are, are not from my experience. Well, that's why I, I really prefer uh, for, for, for heady, you know, concentrates, really um, alkane extraction, mm -hmm. like what Murph does. And, yeah. uh, you, you know, you just get a different, what, what you're, you had mentioned the water, what the water really does in, in supercrit is it changes the polarity of the solvent, which yeah, totally yeah. messes with its, uh, the, and and supercrit's a it's a hot extraction, man. My extractions have to be really cold because I, I always say the best way to winterize is to not have to winterize, right? You don't want to winterize because in winterization you're going to again remove some of those most volatile notes of your essence. And I've tasted really good CO2 oil that's really clean, and but it's just different than like a a really heady. You Absolutely. know, butane, propane extract. You just can't reproduce that, right, Jason? I, I, yeah, I, no, I, I, I haven't, haven't seen yeah. a comparable thing. You know, people try to separate fractions or recombine and try to recreate that, but um, no, I, I personally haven't seen it. And that was when I was talking to Murphy Murray. One of the things that we talked about was that you know, there's an interesting um, sort of meme in the public's mind that alkane solvents are dangerous and certainly they can be, but lots of things can be dangerous when mishandled or whatever. Um, we all have a propane gas grill behind our house, right? <laughs> right. That's a, that's a propane tank hooked up to an igniter folks. Right. Right. You know, okay. That is that regulated in any way? <laughs> 
you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's using uh, the gas, using butane and propane certainly requires certainly safety precautions. I mean, I come, my, I worked uh, uh, 18 years as a PhD chemist at, at DuPont Central Research and uh, we probably just lost half of our viewers right there, right? Um, <laughs> like, oh, but, screw this guy. Get out of here. <laughs> but I, I think one of the things that, that I bring to the cannabis industry, and I think Murphy hits on these notes too, is is the real safety aspects of this, yeah. which is that I would never ask an employee or a client's employee to ever work on something that I don't feel safe running myself. And certainly if handled in a right environment, class one, division one environment, the right gear, you know, we know what the right gear is these days. I mean, you can't be open blasting and just flaring solvent all over the place. I mean, the stuff's flammable, okay? But, you know, ultimately, you know, Bic lighters got butane in it. They're all over the place. I mean, we need to really get more sensible people in, like Kyle was saying on your podcast, you know, people at ASTM and other people who really understand that this isn't unique to the cannabis industry. Right. These types of solvents are used in flavor and fragrance extraction all over the place. There and so practices already. That's right. That's right. And, and part of like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's like this tax that the cannabis industry and suppliers and vendors in the cannabis industry like put because, ooh, this is the cannabis version. You know, if it wasn't cannabis, if we were extracting <laughs> pine or oregano, oh, yeah, you just do this. Oh, but cannabis, oh, my God, you better, you know, all of a sudden it becomes a bunch of gangsters from the hood who want to open blast. And right. no, it's not like that anymore. And the facilities that I've worked at are, are safe and incident-free. And most of, again, the current best practices that are out there, whether you're doing CO2 extraction or solvent extraction, are really designed with worker and employee safety, as well as, you know, safety of the of the patients and consumers yeah. who are using it. So if, if you're using solvent, make sure it's backed off. They have vacuum ovens for that, okay? You know, it's like, right. you can do solvent. I mean, I think that the notion that the CO2 people say, ooh, it's solvent, ooh, residual solvents, oh, no. mm -hmm. you know, it's like, come on, man. You just, you have SOPs in place that basically say exactly. below a certain threshold, the stuff meets requirements, yeah, that's it. Well, in my perspective, coming from, um, you know, I mentioned before that a lot of my background in labs, besides doing, needed the analytical chemistry stuff that I did and everything is I was always heavily involved in quality control. And so for me, all of these problems are just quality control problems. It's just like, Absolutely. yeah, figure out your SOPs, figure out your action limits, uh, figure out how you're going to verify, you know, that you meet your own quality standards, um, right. get, get consistent, uh, control monitoring is such a, a big thing in, in quality systems, but, you know, actually plot, you know, how you're performing batch to batch to batch and make sure you're not seeing some drift for some reason, I you know, that this Jason with all my clients who are basically producers, they all have internal analytical, they all have HPLC, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have HPLCs and the GCs because they're doing residual head, they're doing headspace to, to make sure that there's no residual solvents. It passes you send it over to packaging and you ship it, right? So, I mean, as integral part of the production process, you have to be able to use third-party outside labs mm -hmm. to basically give you COAs that can move stuff out the door. And right. I, I think, again, I, I, I listened to one of your episodes on testing. There's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of scuttlebutt where there really doesn't need to be. I mean, a lot of these mm -hmm. testing labs now, I mean, some of them are getting ISO certification. 
I've heard of two that have um, recently gotten the, um, what, there's a new A2ALA thing, or I'm not yeah. even clear. Yeah, A2LA was one of the first groups that really dived into trying to help labs right. get ISO accredited, and I think right. they've expanded some uh, from there. Yeah, isn't there like a new certification process or something? I, I, I forget. I I saw something on LinkedIn, and I probably should have paid more attention to it. But I, I, what I found is like I work with Steep Hill, Maryland. Those guys are yeah. awesome. They have very good analytical chemists who run their machines. If we see a data point that doesn't look right, we, we could talk with them. We could have a dialogue with, with them. And one great thing is that we have the same Shimazu instrumentation, so we could be using yes. the same analytical methods. And we'll know because we'll have tested that stuff 10 ways since Sunday before we send it over to the outside lab to get the COA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's something. So you just brought up something um, that I have direct experience with, too, and that um, I work, some of the consulting that I do, I'll work with different producers in their in-house analytical labs to help them develop methods and uh, that sort of thing. But one of the things that I encourage them is to do exactly what you're talking about, which is make sure that you've worked, that you've got this dialogue with your third-party lab going and that you're working in sync so that you know um, that your results are going to agree. You know, your unexpected result, or exactly. you can call them up and say, "Hey, this result looks a little weird. Can you run this again?" Or exactly, if exactly, yes. And that's that's been invaluable in my experience. I mean, several clients that I've worked with have the same or very similar instrumentation that their third party labs using, and I'll help them get the get everything dialed in so that things are consistent. And then as soon as something is inconsistent, it's like, well, let's have that conversation. Let's figure this out. It becomes very quick. Not a lot of like scratching your head, trying to, you know, figure out, you know, you can really spiral if you haven't gotten that synchronicity in with your third party lab, if you have an in-house lab. Well, and it's a great point to bring up too, Jason. I mean, this is a spot where a chemist can really help a cannabis organization. Yeah. And I, I'll call it the, the role kind of like quality development manager or quality product manager. Mm -hmm. Basically, you have your extraction team and they're making their extracts and they're making everything good. Well, really that it needs to go into quarantine to use yes, that word, yes. right? Yeah, and then exactly. go for third-party testing. And then when that third-party testing comes back, then it could be released for yeah. packaging. So it, it, it almost seems like you need in your GMP facility uh, a quality control manager who's probably got an anal analytical chemist who's running your own in-house quality, but who owns that interface with your third-party lab. And that could be not the production guy, production guys working on production. This could be the quality manager's role is to be the interface for that third-party testing lab. Ab ab absolutely. I, I totally, totally agree. Um, and, you know, this highlights the importance for product manufacturers to look into GMP in the first place, because if the idea of an outgoing quarantine is a new idea, um, then you really need to read the uh, the FDA rules for good <laughs> manufacturing practices, because that's a, you know, a very basic thing. And for ingredients, too, coming in. So you've got these analytical checks on ingredients coming in if you're a product manufacturer that's mixing things um, and then the quality so you have like a um, a receiving quarantine so everything that's coming in gets held has to go through some quality checks to be approved to be used in a product and then the outgoing quarantine to mm -hmm. have those quality checks make sure it meets your standards before it reaches a customer at uh, two very very basic things that 
can totally change an organization if they haven't utilized mm-hmm. um, those processes. And like you said, it's really important for someone with an analytical chemistry background to be involved in that process because they're going to think about, you know, how you're interpreting data, all those sort of things differently. Um, someone that doesn't have that background. Absolutely. Well, and they could also interface with the instrumentation company when the HPLC is not working right and your thing needs to be recalibrated. And sometimes what you see is subtle shifts in retention times, which doesn't mean anything more than your column is used. <laughs> right. And to the non experienced person, oh, wait a second, it's supposed to be 3.21 and it's 3.28. Oh, you know, well, okay, it's just, you know, yeah, you have to be right. able to kind of flow with the, go with the flow. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you you mentioned so backing up just a little bit. So you mentioned some of your work with Dupont, and um, let's get back on track to your story and how you got to where you are working with hydrogenated cannabinoids. Yeah. Um, so uh, before we get quite there, what did that transition look like coming out of you know the chemistry world, working with Dupont, and transitioning into the cannabis space? Um, what was that that like for you? That had to be a very interesting transition. I was like going back on tour with the dead. I've been on this program called Hash Church. If you go to YouTube and you look up Hash Church, you can see, uh, I think I was on like about 300 different episodes there. And I've told my wow. story a few times, but the nice thing is, is that, is that the parallel to like where it brings us to now is that, um, you know, I was kind of like a hippie, I guess, as a kid, you know, I, I was just, you know, following the dead around and getting degrees in chemistry. And then I was like, I don't want to go to work yet. Let me go postdoc. I moved out to Fort Collins, Colorado. It was the first time I grew weed indoors. You know, I'd grown outdoors before, but I'd never grown indoor weed. I moved out to Colorado in the early 90s, really crunch, crunchy time to be in uh, yeah, yeah. Fort Collins. We were growing, I think, uh, um, cuttings of the skunk number one strain from from skunk man sam himself who i ended up i saw skunk man sam aka dave watson i ended up meeting him years later as a as a panelist on hash church and now (laughs) now we're close friends and we we have dialogue on skype every once in a while and um yeah so my transition from like an industrial scientist where all my hippie friends were like dude you're working for the fucking enemy man <laughs> fucking dupont man dupont was part of the whole thing with the hearst right that made me yeah. illegal and while it's true that a dupont nylon parachute saved george herbert walker bush when he jumped from that plane it was hemp rope that held the parachute right so, yeah so But, uh, you know, the funny thing is that when I went to work for DuPont, it was kind of like at the golden age of what their central research group was a very academic group that looked at, you know, very fundamental chemistry like catalysis and biocatalysis. And there was so much interesting stuff. There were Nobel Prize winners up and down the hallway for me. It was just it was the kind of place where I walked in and I kissed my desk because I didn't have to report to a business. They just basically said, go into your lab and do science. Within my first couple of years, I had a couple rounds of NSF funding with an academic uh, collaboration with a professor from biophysics who was up at the University of Pennsylvania, which brought postdocs to my lab. And we were able to really do some high powered science early on. But 
things that DuPont changed right around Y2K, when they took our Macintoshes away, they took our, our <laughs> Apple computer, you know, all the scientists, we love Apple computers. Yeah. Uh, I had my PhD dissertation on Apple. They took away all our Apples because of the Y2K bug and made us convert over to IBM. That's when I sensed a real fundamental change in that they wanted business relevance mm -hmm. to your chemistry. Mm -hmm. So I worked on this product. I don't know if you can see this. It's called Entomol. That's the four, four hour. Here's the seven hour. This is an insect repellent where the active ingredient is hydrogenated catmint oil. So we oh, took the wow. We, yeah, we took the essential oil of catmint, which like that picture of cannabis behind you, catmint yeah. expresses its essential oil in tricam, tricam on the leaf mm -hmm. surface. Yep. And uh, the essential oil is steam distilled, and it contains a terpenoid called nepetalactone, which is the thing that makes cats yeah. respond Freak to out. it. So it's yeah. kind of like <laughs> cannabinoids for kitties. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, um, uh, well, anyway, as it, in and of itself, that structure, which is a bicyclic uh, uh, terpenoid, is similar oh. to structures that are found in the secretions of beetles. You were talking about chemical ecology yeah. with Jackie last week. That was a fascinating uh, uh, episode. Uh, the, the world of chemical ecology really came into existence at Cornell University uh, between um, uh, the, the 40s and the 50s and the 60s when Tom Eisner was working with a guy named Jerry Meinwald over in chemistry. And they discovered that the way that insects communicate with each other is through this chemical ecology, which is the emission of, of, of compounds in their exudate, and that told the insects that were behind them whether they should go yeah. there or they should go there quick or maybe they should go somewhere else. So uh, these bicyclic monoterpenoids were actually isolated in the anal secretions of beetles like back in the, back in yeah. the 40s and 50s, and they were insect repellents. And so we had tested catmint oil for insect repellency, and it's mildly insect repellent, but what was detrimental was is it caused immediate skin sensitization. Hmm. The other issue, yeah, the other issue was the catmint oil just smelled like yeah. wet hay. It just yeah. smelled very herbaceous, very loud. But the hydrogenation improved the essence of the oil to make it smell more lemony, minty. So it oh. gave a lemony, minty smell. And now, more importantly, we lose the skin sensitization. Interesting. So, while at DuPont, they did the heavy lifting to basically get this registered as an active ingredient with the EPA. And while that's not as stringent as getting a new drug listed with the FDA, we still had to do safety testing and we had to do efficacy testing on humans, IRB reproved, you know, all the nine yards. Uh, so we got it over the goal line. DuPont didn't commercialize it, but this company, Entomol, did. Entomol. Yeah. Uh, and so they're in discussions now with big box retailers and other people to take this hydrogenated oil out to the market. So after I left DuPont, I was thinking, well, hydrogenation, has anyone done that to cannabinoids? Mm -hmm. And it turned out, yeah, I went back to the Roger Adams literature and he hydrogenated THC to convert THC into, when you hydrogenate THC, you convert it into HHC or hexahydrocannabinol. Right, and he also—I he, don't think he hydrogenated CBD, but um, Mishulam did many years later. And but the one thing that they didn't do is uh, they didn't THCA wasn't discovered until until Mishulam's uh -huh. were back in the mm -hmm. '60s, and so 
Adams had always isolated his stuff by distillation, so his stuff was always just THC. Yeah. It was already decarb. So I, I did a search on, well, has anyone ever hydrogenated THCA? And that would make HHCA. And when I did a literature search on that in January in 2015, there were zero hits in the chemical abstracts database. And I was like, what? That's rare. Yeah. Holy wow. shit. No way. So I did the search again. And yeah, it came back zero hits. And I'm like, whoa, I wrote that patent that day. I, wow. took, one of, I wow. took one of my catmint patents. Mm-hmm. I replaced napetalactone with CBD yep. and THC. I replaced... Uh, Nepeta with cannabis disease and cannabis, and basically wrote a provisional patent before I even, you know, done this. Yeah. And then, long story short, and I don't even want to get into details of the story. It's a little ugly, but you know, cannabis stories sometimes can get ugly yep. when it involves people and money and all that kind of uh, thing. Oh yeah, but, I know. But about a year later, we were able to convert the provisional patent into a full patent with data that my friend uh, at the Albany College of Pharmacy was able to give me where we took the hydrogenated cannabinoids and the non-hydrogenated ones and fed them to mice that were infected with glioblastoma multiform. So glioblastoma multiform, very aggressive form of brain cancer and left unchecked, you know, will totally you know, kill these mice or kill people. So what we found is that uh, versus control groups is that the mice that were fed with the cannabinoids had much, much smaller tumors than the mice that did not have uh, anything fed to them, just the control solution, just the saline solution. But the hydro- the ones that were fed with the hydrogenated cannabinoids, the tumors were smaller. Mm-hmm. So the, the hydrogenation seemed to enhance the anti-tumor efficacy and uh, Shakir Musa, who's the professor at uh, Albany College of Pharmacy, he and I overlapped at DuPont many years ago. And his area of expertise is cancer biology. And he breaks cancer down by looking at the fundamental mechanisms. Are these things inhibiting uh, proliferation of cancer cells? Do they inhibit uh, what's called angiogenesis, which is the ability to reroute vascular plumbing to feed the tumors? So we found just a variety, again, that these things are, are, are active. These things and, and the activity was enough to include into the patent to get composition, that, yeah. composition of matter on HHCA, which is a white crystalline solid, right? It's a beautiful white crystalline solid. And we got a couple other compositional claims on that too, as well. So it's kind of like it's interesting. I went to DuPont, <laughs> I did some industrial chemistry, I learned about hydrogenation, and I'm like, oh, I leave DuPont now, take that hydrogenation with me. And so the cool thing here is that by hydrogenating not just the the main cannabinoids, we're also hydrogenating terpenes in those extracts. Yeah. There's just a universe of new molecular space to explore. What do the hydrogenated terpenes do? What if we take the hydrogenated cannabinoids and add them back to right. the native terpenes? Uh, I like that. Uh, the hydrogenated terpenes don't seem to uh, uh, quite do it for me, but um. Uh, it's interesting, man, because again, hydrogenation is just one of many different chemical reactions right. where now we can look at that plant behind you on the wall as not the product, but starting material. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, exactly. Well, and uh, so one thing I want to do for listeners that might not understand what hydrogenation is, I want to summarize it and correct me if I get anything wrong here, sure. but basically the process of hydrogenation is trying to take, you know, so sometimes you have these molecules that have double bonds 
Mm -hmm. um, and essentially, you're saturating these molecules with hydrogen so that where there would normally be these double bonds, um, assuming that they can rearrange, um, you just basically stick hydrogen on there, and there's no need for that double bond to be there. Um, and you can look up examples of these all over the place um, of kind of the, the before and after hydrogenation products. Um, but in a, a simple term, that's that's pretty much what it is. And you usually yeah. use um, some sort of um, uh, metal substrate that, um, at least my classical understanding of hydrogenation, some sort of metal mm -hmm. substrate that's going to provide um, those um, hydrogen um, mm -hmm. cations um, for the process. Did I, did I summarize that? Yeah, well yeah I, I, absolutely. You're saturating double bonds. So carbon can be doubly bonded to each other, or it can be completely saturated. If you add hydrogen across there, you put now a hydrogen on each one of those carbon atoms. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's so interesting because in theory, it's such a simple kind of process. It's like, let's just give these molecules more hydrogen so that they are saturated and, and, um, you know, it's not it's not like adding functional groups, you know, it's not like taking a molecule and going a full, I mean, I guess technically these would be semi-synthetics, but when it's I think of semi-synthetics. right? So we're taking yeah. the tetrahydrocannabinoid and converting it into a hexahydrocannabinoid, right? We could also take the tetrahydrocannabinoid. Right. If we rip out one molecule of hydrogen, now we have a dihydrocannabinoid. Dihydrocannabinoids immediately yeah. aromatize to cannabinol. So cannabinol, fully aromatic, dihydro, two double bonds, tetrahydro, what comes in the plant, one double bond, our stuff completely hydrogenated, right? So, so that's yeah. the spectrum of, of yeah. playing around with the oxidation cool. states of the methyl cyclohexane. The interesting thing is that, that, that double bond is the most reactive functional group in the molecule. So what we're mm -hmm. doing in the hydrogenation is we're basically taming the most reactive functional group, but it's still a cannabinoid. It's right. still a cannabinoid. And I can tell you when I dab this, and I have, you know, <laughs> you feel the cannabinoid effect. You know, I. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, in fact, when you do it with terpenes, it's even more pronounced because I do think that the terpenes right. do Something. play some yeah. type of modulating effect. <laughs> Yeah, and I always like to say something because sometimes people talk about as if we really understand all these dynamics between the terpenes and cannabinoids and the entourage effect, and we're still so yeah. so far from understanding in a sophisticated level exactly what's what's going on there. I think what it does is what you said before. It just opens up. The, so I I liken so terpenes basically fluidizes the bilayer. So it just yes. it's kind of oh, like. Yeah. Opening up all the windows at your house, right? Yeah. Opening up all the windows at your house gives exchange of inside and out. I think that that's what cannabinoid, that's what the terpenes help cannabinoids do. And I believe that there are outside-in signals that upregulate yeah. cannabinoid receptor expression. So now you're going to feel a mo more predominant effect because there's just more more receptors. Right, and I and I think there's there's interplay there with like calcium channels and that sort of thing too. Like, so the opening the window is a really great analogy yeah. because when you think about things like uh, trip V receptors and that sort of thing, which right. are part of the endocannabinoid system that cannabinoids right. and terpenes are interacting with, um, yeah, you you're changing um, sort of the elemental diffusion between cell right. barriers and things, and um, right. and that affects so many things. If if anyone has studied brain science, uh, when I was in college, I took a really great um, um, cognitive science class, you know, and we learn about what causes a, um, um, you know, a signal in the brain from a neuron. And it's, it's these, these differentials of 
uh, potassium, calcium, you know, yep. these uh, different gates. things. Yeah, iron gates. Yep, it's all about iron yep. gates. And so yep. that that understanding that I got, because originally when I was in college, I, I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist. So that was <laughs> where some of my studies were initially. And then when I got into natural products work and everything, I was able to take that. And I was like, oh, okay, what I learned in brain science, you know, it's happening in all these other cells too, in different ways. Yeah. Um, affecting. So the, I, I was telling you before, I had some NSF funding. And so my collaborator yeah. at UPenn was a guy named William DeGrado. He's now a professor at uh, UCSF in San Francisco. And he is a, a, a lead. In fact, he might win a Nobel for de novo protein design. Him and a few other people might share it someday. His specialty was he built the ion channels from scratch, from peptides. Oh, wow. He used wow. a peptide synthesizer that, that made these helical peptides that self-assembled into these bundles that were the ion channels themselves. So the proton channel, that's very important in influenza virus. And also many of these ion channels, I mean, it's just – it's fascinating shit because he's basically come up with this whole area of what's called de novo protein design which is basically building proteins from scratch and it's just fascinating they'll yeah. probably win him the nobel let's hope that is that hey, is Bill, yeah maybe yeah. Listening. <laughs> i know yeah hopefully so that is that is super super really fascinating cool and it gets into where my mind races with all this stuff is um you know there's a rush to try to um improve uh 3d printing technology to uh really blend it with um chemistry and biology and everything i mean we can we can print tissues you know we've gotten to where with 3d printers we can actually print organs and getting them to work is a different story but yeah. um you know and there's there's this uh sort of um fantasy that a lot of us scientists have of like when can we get to the point that we can um have you know all of these substrates and have a, a tool that can then you know we we put in formulas and have a tool that then de novo builds you know very 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 tiny molecular structures and to an extent it's it's happening um in sort of a rudimentary way but looking forward like 50 years 100 years or so um, there's really exciting technological work going into that to try to empower chemists um so that when they have an idea they can use um, technology to run with that idea uh, much faster, which I am really excited about. Well, that's what they're doing with stem cells. I mean, it, yeah, it's yeah. absolutely fantastic. And to think about the role that the endocannabinoid system plays in in all of that regulation. I mean, again, the endocannabinoid system, we, we, we're just scratching the surface on, yeah. on what, what it can do. And I think, yeah, in the years to come, when research really starts happening, uh, it's really going to be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something. I have a article I was writing for some uh, magazine recently where I'm talking about some of the common myths in the industry that fascinate me and and inspire me as an educator. But one of them is that we actually know what the endocannabinoid system does, and you know, I I point out that like clinically we know it's involved in all of these different things, but like our modern conception of the endocannabinoid system didn't come about till the late '90s, and even then it's it's hard to really communicate how the endocannabinoid system is changing how we think of everything the body does. Um, and one example um, that I've given before is just looking at cannabinoid receptor complexes with like serotonin receptors and dopamine receptors. That's a very small example, um, right. but one that highlights that like, oh, you thought you understood the serotonergic system, but you ignored CB1 receptors. Right. 
you know, right. it, it really changes everything. And so, yeah, there's a ton we don't know. And we, we have really peeled back this, this veil, the surface, and we're like, whoa, there is so much here, so much going on, it's so much to research. It's the it, uh, a software of our own immune system, right? It's just, yeah. and, and, and it's almost naive to think this is unique to cannabinoids. There's the capsaicins right, right. and, yep, and yep. the muscarinic receptors and the nicotinic receptors. I mean, yep. all these receptors that we know have some sort of biological function. I mean, I think when you sort of piece it all together, it's a very nonlinear yeah. set of Legos <laughs> yep, exactly. to try to figure out exactly, you know, cause and effect. But I think what we know now, I mean, there's certainly full blown clinical trials that are happening right now because the basis under which these compounds can elicit biological action to intervene in disease is real. And we know it, yeah. we've seen yeah. it and it's no longer anecdotal. And there's, if you go to clinicalorg.com or, or, or uh, clinicalstudies.org, I think you can see, mm -hmm. uh, and just put cannabinoid in there as a keyword. Yeah, you can see the current funding of, of cannabinoid clinical research. And it's, it's, it's pretty substantive. There's a lot of work going on to understand the allosteric interactions yes. around cannabinoid receptor potentiation, because I think those kinds of things are the ways that you could perhaps look at how you would, uh, you know, do something like this. So something that you're touching on about allosteric modulation, all of that, that has me really excited is um, some of the work that's going in to try to understand the pharmacodynamics of CBG. Mm -hmm. is showing that CBG may be what's called a protein agonist, where uh, sort of tying into this biphasic type of response that it will um, affect receptors very differently when it's uh, when the receptors are already um, mm -hmm. active versus when they're not. Mm -hmm. um, and this just shows, I, don't, I really don't like the lock and key concept of pharmacology, which most pharmacologists will say, yeah, like, yeah, of course, that's an old model that, you know, we've ditched a long time ago, but it still gets talked a lot about in sort of pop science culture and that sort of thing. It, it really dilutes all these dynamics actually happen, happening at the receptors. Like, you know, you have your orthosteric binding site, the, the primary binding site, but then you have mm -hmm. these allosteric binding sites that are, you know, kind of off to the side and still elicit activity. You have compounds that act as these protein agonists that don't have a single activity on a receptor. It's very dependent on what the receptor is already doing. Um, and then not to mention, like you were saying, like uh, you have a sea of chemicals around this, uh, you know, these cell walls where these receptors are and everything um, that are all, you know, kind of doing their thing. And, and the activity of a receptor is really about vibrations. You know, you've got this protein sitting in this, you know, very fluid, substance. Um, and when these compounds are interacting with that receptor, it's essentially shaking it as well as causing a cascade of chemical reactions and things. So it's just, it's a very complicated puzzle. And um, that I just, I love it. I love, I love complex systems. Um, and uh, so, you know, I like to mention that just to put into perspective for people listening that when you hear about like, oh, a cannabinoid blocks this receptor or stimulates mm -hmm. this receptor. That's a very simplified language mm -hmm. that sometimes we have to use to communicate, but doesn't accurately portray what's really mm -hmm. going on. Um, well, and absolutely. So, so in, in, in the mid-80s, when rational drug design was first developed, 
and you're able to actually crystallize the the the, the, the binding pocket that the yeah. inhibitor has to add into. Well, you'd be like, okay, well here's here's the binding site, here's the photographic negative. All I need to do is make this one molecule, and we're good, right? Right. We dock it in silico, right inside the computer. We can we can do MM2 calculations, which is very sophisticated. Uh, molecular dynamics calculations to calculate what the, you know, molecules, we draw them flat on a piece right. of paper, but they're, they're anything but flat. They vibrate, and they, they rock and they roll, and there's different what are called conformations. And so the way that if you look at the molecular structure of CBD, for example, compared to THC, CBD has free rotation around the methylcyclohexene axis with the aromatic ring. Uh, and yeah. so because you get free rotation there, it has a different shape. The molecules like rod shaped versus kind of like a flat puckered shape, which is what THC is. So the way that these interactions affect how it goes into the receptor is that, you know, you have basically again something that's very fluid like you say and what happens sometimes with allosterism is it actually changes the conformation of the receptor and makes it more accessible to substrate which increases the reaction that that's going on in in that active site i know for certain enzymes what they find is the cofactors that are adding to the enzymes what they're doing is again kind of like you, you put calcium in there, you get things going, and things just starts chugging away. And what happens is, again, the active site almost becomes solvent exposed to where you can really get a favorable reaction because now your enzyme has basically got its active site accessible to the solvent where your substrate is. And so, yeah, yeah. all these things have a big, big manifestation for how does it make you feel? Does it give you the same relief? Like if you take a vape pen versus smoke a joint, I think all those subtleties of the of the so-called entourage effect is some synergistic assembly of molecules in a transient state that, again, the terpenes might be doing one thing, the flavonoids might be doing something else. The fact that you have a little bit of CBG in there, you know, CBG has just got incredible properties. doesn't get you high or anything, but right. I mean – for antibacterial and for yeah, other yeah. effects. You saw the paper where they were talking about COVID too. I mean, there's there's a lot of, of research that needs to be done by people like me and people like yourself and all the generation of new cannabinoid scientists that are gonna get inspired by listening to this podcast. Yeah, yeah, I hope so, I, I really do. And um, I think that's that's probably an excellent place to start to wrap up the conversation because I, um, I how long I, was this supposed to go anyway? <laughs> I always say it goes as long as it goes. It, you know, oh, I'll, that's not good with me. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk to you as long as you talk to me. <laughs> um, well, there's so many things to talk about. We can we can have another session if you want. Again, maybe I would love report, to, yeah. report down the road somewhat. But uh, yeah, yeah thanks for having me on. This has been great. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I definitely want to follow up. I'm sure we could do a whole series <laughs> together. Um, and before we totally sign off, I want to hand the platform over to you, um, let people know um, how to learn more about your work, um, any of the companies you're associated with, how they can learn about those, um, anything you want to share and any closing notes. Um, the podcast is yours until we sign off. Okay, thanks, Jason. Well, again, I appreciate the opportunity to come on. In fact, I think it was Kyle who yeah, uh, yeah, recommended. Happen. And, 
Yeah, so I, I, I want to just talk about the formation of the ACS thing. So in uh, at the um, Denver ACS meeting in March of, of uh, 2015, I met with my friend Mike Bishop and his supervisor, Jim Dawson, at Heidoff International. Mm-hmm. Um, Heidoff is a equipment supplier into the laboratory industry, pharmaceuticals, food, uh, uh, processing, all kinds of biotech stuff. They make uh, a very popular line of uh, rotor evaporators, which are mm-hmm. used in solvent recovery and extraction operations. And I had this, I had this notion again, this feeling that you know, you know, again, 2014, 2015, states were coming out and legalizing. There was a, a testing industry that was sort of being birthed, which again, we've talked a little bit about testing, but you know, having an analytical chemist in in that role in those facilities, we realized that we are here at the ACS meeting in the Denver Convention Center, and we, we looked at these all these chemists and you know, in ten years from now, a fair number of these people are gonna be working in the cannabis industry. Yeah. And and we had a conversation there that led us to, you know what? we should try to form our own division and having the sponsorship of someone like Heidoff because Heidoff, they're the people who sponsor, who sponsor this award. So this is the El Soli award before they called it the El Soli award and they called it the um, North American award for excellence and commitment to cannabis chemistry. In fact, check it out. Kyle actually signs it. Oh, nice. Wow. I have Kyle's signature hanging up in my office. What was that? <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. yeah. These guys are all my friends, so I, I, I like to give them a hard time. But anyway, so we got together with, um, and this was actually before Ezra and before Jehan, you know, got together with a few folks and we said, you know, it's probably pretty unlikely that the American Chemical Society would devote an entire division to just one plant right i mean they do have a society of rubber chemistry but if you think about it that's the tire manufacturers and there's a lot of rubber that's manufactured in the world probably about the same size of the cannabis market if you think about it rubber finds its way everywhere tires sneakers rubber Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so um but you know we had this notion that you know, somehow the American Chemical Society, which is the professional society of chemists, I think the the oldest professional society of chemistry in the world next to the chemical society, which is the Brits, I think the Brits beat us. But I think this is like one of the things where we recognize that if we could somehow have a form, like maybe a, a natural products form where we could have like a cannabis subdivision, we, I, I, I was kind of skeptical that they would give us division status. Yeah. But as, as it turns out, after the dis- original discussions happened, that's when we brought people like Ezra and Jehan in. And it seemed like we were building a critical mass of people who thought that, hey, you know what we can do? Let's pitch this to chemical health and safety. So the chemical health and safety is a division in the American mm-hmm. Chemical Society. And um, we pitched it to them. And, uh, and Ezra got up there and did his thing. And uh, they're like, yeah, chemical safety, because the aspect around safety, we were talking before about extraction and working with volatile solvents or working with CO2 under high pressures. I mean, these are chemical processes that really need the shepherding of uh, experts who 
done this kind of thing before. You know, I worked in a large chemical company where we were working with really dangerous materials. And when I compare that to what we do at, at cannabis operations, I mean, we, we don't yeah, come, it, it, it's, it's not even close. So the point is, is that there is a role for our professional society to play in mentoring opportunities and training yeah, opportunities, yeah. creating a symposia. And it was that discussion in uh, in uh, March of uh, 2015 at the ACS meeting, which led to uh, us getting together as an as a unofficial group. So it's my, myself, I think there were like four other people. We were the founders of the, of the division. And um, yeah, it's grown in popularity. So we now have the El Solio Award, which again is sponsored by uh, Hydoff, which again, is very important to have sponsors who believe. And so I think Hydoff and Shimatsu and some of the other you know, uh, instrument manufacturers realize, you know what, this is a real industry. We're selling millions of dollars of equipment into yep. this industry. We need support and foster growth in these types of forms. And so, you know, they get together at the ACS meeting. When I got my award, it was down in New Orleans. You'll love this. We had, Ezra had a, had a second line band. You know, so we had a second line band yeah. and we had, we had a march awesome. from like the yeah. convention center down awesome. to our, our social event. It was all the chemists and, you know, it was just, yeah, it was so, so cool. So wow. there's a lot of, there's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of, you know, I've, uh, I've passed along resumes. I think I've gotten some people job interviews, uh, maybe even hired. Um, there's certainly a network of us that can help people who are interested in getting into the chemistry side of the cannabis industry. You know, they can you know, again, go to a meeting and talk with people that yeah. they don't have to be worried uh, might be an undercover DEA agent or something. No, we're just, we're cannabis enthusiasts, just like yourself. And hey, you want to step outside? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. I've, I found, you know, I, I lived kind of in a, I've, I always describe myself as a hermit and then I've sort of like been in a cave for a long time doing my thing and not really getting um not really socializing too much with the community but over the past couple of years as i've kind of stepped out of my cave and started to talk to other people uh that were doing similar work that i was doing and you know and all sorts of other interesting work i did quickly realize there is a strong community a strong sense of camaraderie around sure. all of us that are you know scientists that are trying to do good work um you know with the plant and and the compounds it produces and where we can take all of that and and we're all figuring out a lot of this stuff together i mean you talk about yeah 2014 2015 when um states were legalizing and the lab testing industry was for cannabis was really starting to evolve i mean i was right there you know um mm -hmm helping to build labs out in Oregon. Um, and we were one of the labs that we had at the time was one of the first labs in Oregon accredited, which, you know, was a really big deal to me of like trying to push mm -hmm. that forward. And, you bet. and um, so a lot of this is sort of frontier work too, trying to figure out how to bring this area of science into the fold um, of a broader world that most of us have been a part of that we've come out of either through academia or um you know from our professional science work or whatever and trying to see this work respected on the same level as you know as everything else and to try to figure out some of these nuances and and to help provide um 
you know, stepping stones sort of for the people that are going to come after us as well. You know, once again, standing on the shoulders of giants, but, Mm -hmm. you know, really planning for the future of these scientists that are going to come after and giving them a a roadmap to, uh, you know, and shortcuts and everything so they can stay safe and Mm -hmm. uh, do high quality work and get connected with the the right people and and share knowledge and and push everything forward. Um, absolutely, well, and, and it's perfectly okay to have a career in the cannabis industry, and we need yeah. good scientists. And so, there's no reason why a scientist today who's getting their degree in engineering or biology or you know, what, 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 whatever. I mean, the the point is is that th- th- this is an industry that's not going away. And that we need high quality, highly trained individuals who are, you know, most of the people who work in cannabis operations, at least that I've come in contact with, have a real passion. You know, like it's like some of them can't believe that they're actually doing what they do. Right, right. (laughs) They love their job so much. And again, if you love your job, you don't work a day in your life because what you do is you're so connected to it. And I think rarely do you find that kind of industry or that kind of opportunity in our lifetime. We're at the beginning of kind of like what I would call an S curve. And that S S curve is just, we're at the front end of that S curve. And as that S curve takes up, eventually it'll plateau. But I think in the next coming years, you'll see lots of innovation and lots of creativity from maybe folks who had non-cannabis industry jobs and they're finally like, you know what, I can cross over and utilize my skill set, whether it's business, whether it's science, there's, we need all kinds of people in the cannabis industry who have a high integrity. And, you know, I, I, I look at the opportunities like that we've discussed today about doing clinical work, about understanding the entourage effect, about looking at strain specificity or terpene profile specificity or cannabis. There's, uh, this is, this is an, an open box of Legos for everybody to play with, right? It's an orchard of low-hanging fruit. I there's mean, so there's... much out there, so much out there that you could do that it's just, it's amazing. And now you think about, again, crossing into veterinary science and crossing into animal health and looking at hemp applications and, and materials applications for hemp. Um, I mean, there is just a never-ending need for talented people in this space. And what I hope is that through this podcast and the other things that are out there on the internet is that people are getting good balanced input to say, you know what, I'm gonna be bold. I'm gonna move out to California. I'm gonna get a job, maybe, I don't know, just as a grunt worker in a grow, but ultimately learning from the plant because the plant teaches you so much. I learned so much growing that you could never, learn that in a classroom the only way you're going to learn is by getting the dirt underneath your fingernails and to understand what all of these issues are because yeah the plant is a great a great teacher and i think it's a great thing for bringing people together kind of like going back to this art connection I played music and I reached an incredible, I was in a Grateful Dead band. And so we were playing while the Grateful Dead was still playing. And so, you know, deadheads are really enthusiasts about their music, kind of like the way cannabis enthusiasts are. And so people would really come and they'd pour that energy out to me and I would give it back to them. And so that give and take is something that I think humans have experienced with this plant for millennia and try as they may, they couldn't separate us from it. And we're going to reunify with it in this century, right? And they're going to change the cannabis laws and get them to realize that 
this is a, a miracle, a miracle on earth for us. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. A miracle that will lead to discovery of other miracles. I think so. And it'll continually inspire. You think about all the jazz musicians like Louis Armstrong used to smoke weed and Miles Davis used to smoke and Coltrane and all these guys. These guys used to obtain really right states of minds and then make the most beautiful music in the world. And so the connection between music and cannabis has always been there. And I, I, I just... Uh, you know that that's what my where my passion lies is that parallel between the two absolutely absolutely well this is this has been an awesome conversation i enjoyed it just as much as i knew i would um real quick um do you have um like i don't know if you're public on social media or anything like that are there any websites yeah. or social media accounts well, or anything I'm, you want to my social media thing I do the most is probably Facebook. So you can go ahead and okay. reach out to me. I've found Facebook friends with half the city of Denver <laughs> and Portland <laughs> and nice. most of California. So I don't know a lot of these people, but I, people reach out to me all the time on Facebook with suggestions or, you know, I've gotten resumes, I, I, you know, so yeah, you can reach out to me on Facebook, just Mark Sheldon. And, um, uh, I work for, again, a company called BR Brands, so look at our brands. We make uh, Mary's Medicinals, uh, Dixie Elixirs. I think we're changing the name of Dixie, like everybody else. Uh, but, yeah, uh, we have a, a group of really, really good, uh, uh, highly popular branded products in the cannabis space, so look at BR Brands. But on Instagram, not on Instagram too much, but uh, you can reach me at mbesaw, that's E. S A U. Remember when you used to have aliases? <laughs> like yep. the whole cannabis industry, they would have never been on, on no, Instagram it's, it's, 10, 15 years ago. No way. In fact, everything was like you don't bring cell phones, you don't you don't no, take pictures, yeah. you don't do anything. Now everything is just so outwardly facing that I switched from my alias a few years ago because when I did an article for High Times, they got confused. They thought <laughs> they thought I was two different people. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it still feels strange to me, you know, I mean, right. um, especially moving out to Oregon from Mississippi, like I still struggle with the ingrained paranoias and everything, you know, that I, that I grew up with, even though, you know, I'm in a place where it's very, very safe to <laughs> talk about it. And right. I, you know, I remember early on in uh, some of the first cannabis associated work that I was doing, I remember uh, me and my mentor sort of being like, well, do we make the dive? Like, do we put our names on the website? You know, do we right. put our picture there? You know, and we're like, you know, yeah, no, you know, we're doing. We're doing this that was that, that 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 was a bold move, and the whole industry had to, had to consider that very same issue. And you know, Instagram was just taking down sites. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's just really very very strange too, because again, I think. We would love for nothing more than to show our best nugget or our best extract. We want to, and you know that the industry will will show some extract coming out of the oven or something like that. And next thing you know, they know that there's a drop at that dispensary in Boulder. Before you know it, there's a line around the corner because all those dudes are on Instagram watching yeah. the hash being poured, knowing that this thing is going to be dropping at the yeah. dispensary, and they'll go yeah. and buy it all up. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think Instagram or you know social media in general plays a really important role. But again, I'll point to YouTube uh, for Hash Church, but 
YouTube has been pretty good at putting instructional videos out there. Again, not vetted, certainly, but you can read 10 different ways to make rosin, 10 different ways to make BHO. You know, you have to really put a YouTube filter on what you're watching. Yeah. But, um, Marcus did a really good job on Hash Church, and we brought in – we had the late Lester Grinspoon on a couple episodes. Oh, yeah. Um, awesome. uh, again, Skunk Man Sam is a, is a stalwart. He's on just about every episode. And uh, Marcus would be a good guy for you to get on uh, on Curious About Cannabis. Marcus has just got real-world uh, experiences and expertise, and he's Bubble Man. He's the guy who came up with the Bubble Man band, brand. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bags, but I, I could connect connect you with them offline. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd really appreciate that. Yeah, sure. But check out Hash Church uh, audience. I think you'll like it. And again, there's a lot of funny stuff on there. There's yeah, a lot of you know, like Marcus would be down in Jamaica, or they've they've done things from Spanibus. There's just a ton of yeah, fun stuff yeah. in there. But the first time I saw a rosin come out of the press was on live internet on Hash Church. Couple. That's fascinating. Wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, thanks cool. so much, Mark, for uh, being willing to do this. So this is going to be one of my, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of how long we've gone. We've definitely gone over two hours. I don't oh, know, because we, we actually got it split. Um, but this is going to be, uh, it's it's funny, some folks like really love these like two hour, two and a half hour long discussions. Um, I've started editing the public ones down because I started to get feedback from folks that were... Um, uh, trying to keep up <laughs> with all of the information coming out in the in these conversations, they're like, "Can you like condense it?" So I've been considering like whether to split episodes. I I post all of the full length episodes on my Patreon, and you'll get the full length one to this one too. Um, but probably what people will hear is a condensed, probably like hour and a half long version of this conversation um, sure. publicly. I mean, we we read um, quite a bit. <laughs> we had the little thing in the middle too <laughs> oh yeah yeah exactly yeah but but this has been really really great i'm really happy that we finally connected and know each yeah. other um i look forward to staying in touch and keeping up with the work that you're doing and absolutely we'll we'll definitely do this again in the not too distant future and ramble some more sure uh maybe next time uh i'm home just because i took the day off but i could connect from the lab and we'll do a quick quick tour of the lab and show you around yeah, that'd be awesome yeah yeah and one of these days when it's safe to travel and be around other humans again um you know it's a shame because starting this podcast i was determined to do all of my interviews in person if i could and if you go on my youtube you'll notice that the first uh several episodes of content it's all uh, more professionally shot video and um you know, I'm actually sitting down with somebody, you know, it's, it's not these internet interviews. And I love the internet interviews because I can connect with almost anybody, you know, at any time, which is great, but I would love to actually travel, meet you in person, you know, see your lab in person, do some, you know, some content that way actually in the lab, you know, and really, um, take things to the next level. So maybe next year. <laughs> well, this, <laughs> well, is, this is your pandemic pivot. <laughs> exactly. This is, it really, it really is. Um, I had to make some critical decisions to figure out how to, how to proceed. Cause I mean, I had like lecture scheduled and um, working on a second edition of a, um, a textbook uh, that I publish about cannabis science and all of that. Yeah. It's been a big pivot experience, <laughs> big learning experience. Um, well, that's but, when you grow, you grow the most when yep. you're outside your comfort zone, when you're exactly. outside of your sandbox, that by definition is growth. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those challenges. So anyway, everyone listening, I hope you really enjoyed this conversation. 
Um, if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, go to cacpodcast.com, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just uh, search for Curious About Cannabis and you'll find us. Uh, we're also on YouTube. Uh, when we do get video, uh, we try to get clips and, and full-length episodes on there. And if you want to support the show, you can become a member on our Patreon at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. If you sign up there, you get um, access to a members-only podcast feed where sometimes I'll post um, exclusive episodes or ramblings for myself that I don't put on the public side, um, as well as extended episodes um, and other things. We're starting a, a Discord server, so this could be something interesting uh, for the future, but mm -hmm. I'm starting to reconnect with podcast guests and on our Patreon, um, basically set up like 30-minute or hour-long chats on the Discord server where our patrons that have listened to the episodes, have questions and stuff, can actually um, talk to you for a you know, limited amount of time and post questions, kind of do like informal AMAs and that sort of thing. Um, so cool. the community on our Patreon is growing. So if you're listening and interested in that, um, check that out. We don't deal with advertisers or sponsors. So that's really the way that we make this podcast happen is by the direct support we get from the listeners and fans that care about the show. So check all of that out. And with that, thanks so much for listening or watching. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. To support the show and get access to an exclusive members-only podcast feed, access to private events, merchandise discounts, and more, visit www.patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is produced by Natural Learning Enterprises, a mission-driven education company dedicated to promoting critical thinking skills and public scientific literacy about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is only one of several learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, visit www.naturaledu.com.